good, good. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, that was great. After a, a long holiday, lots of turkey, right? You're awake. That's awesome. Uh, well, happy Thanksgiving, late Thanksgiving, I guess. And, and I guess I could be the first one or one of the first people to wish you a Merry Christmas. Is it too early for that? It, uh, yeah, down here, at Bob said, yeah, it's way too early for Merry Christmas. But uh, if you're like our household, uh, you do Christmas all year long anyway. So it, uh, it's a Merry Christmas all the time. So uh, let me uh, just... Uh, say thank you so much for uh, allowing me to come here today. Uh, so good morning to uh, Redeemer Georgetown. My name is Kirk Wildridge, and I'm the executive director at Williamson Baptist Association. Uh, and uh, it's awesome to be with you guys this morning, and many thanks to Pastor Robert uh, for the invitation to share with you this morning. By the way, you guys, uh, whether you realize it or not, uh, earlier this month, became a part of Williamson Baptist Association. And as, as I've shared with some of the guys this morning, don't let that scare you. It's okay. <laughs> um, uh, the association is not ex exclusively just Baptist, even though that's what we are by name. Um, and so we have many, many different uh, churches that are a part of our association. So, um, and by your association with uh, the Williamson Baptist Association, um, you're able to be involved in supporting uh, many churches, not just yourself, but many churches reach your community with the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ. Uh, my family, I think it's important for you to, to know a little bit about who I am and my family before uh, uh, we go any further. Uh, uh, and so... Uh, my family's been in and around the Williamson Baptist or Williamson County area uh, for a number of years. I've uh, been married to my wife Shelley for uh, this year. This coming year will be 35 years, and uh, we'll be celebrating together. And uh, my wife Shelley, love of my life for for as long as I can remember, and uh, she is a school teacher in in Round Rock and. Uh, uh, hopes to retire soon. I hope that can happen also, but you never know uh, where that will go. Uh, we have three children, Kelsey, Kaylin, and Kai. And yes, around our household, it's a little difficult with all the Ks. Um, my wife does get uh, confused every so often. Uh, Kelsey is our oldest um, and actually uh, has performed on this stage with the theater several times. And so it, it, coming in the doors today uh, felt at home for me. And so uh, she uh, has been involved in musical theater as long as I can remember uh, from the time that she was little. And so uh, she has enjoyed being involved here at the theater uh, with several productions. She is married to Zach uh, Cotting. Uh, they both live in California. Uh, in San Diego, he is a naval officer, a nurse there, and so that's why they live there. And exciting news, I'm about to become a grandpa. <laughs> yeah, uh, at the end of this month, actually, um, uh, little Callie Grace is on her way, and uh, she will be here, uh, could be on Christmas Day. You never know, but that's the, uh, the due date. Uh, my middle daughter, Kaylin, uh, is a nurse down at St. David's here in Austin and lives in the area as well, uh, and we enjoy having her uh, close by. And then I have a son, Kai, 
who is 18 and is a senior at Round Rock High School. And uh, man, he's not happy if he's not chasing some kind of ball. And so uh, they just finished up uh, football season. Now they're going into baseball season and he'll uh, be in involved there. All three of my children uh, through the years have been uh, involved in missions and ministry uh, in some kind of uh, church activities uh, for, for as long as I can remember. And, and it's been fun to watch them over the years grow up uh, with that influence in their life. And so, uh, again, a little bit about me. I was raised in a Christian family, um, uh, and I had all of the influences that you might think that would go with that. My, my parents took me to church on the regular basis, and uh, as long as I can remember, this has been basically the influence, the, the lifestyle that I have uh, lived uh, for all this time. And I'm sure, in, you know, in a, in a crowd like this, many of you uh, may could relate to that kind of upbringing, um, and you may have a similar story. Uh, in that situation, I was basically comfortable with my life. I had a good home, parents that loved me, um, and so I didn't really have many struggles, none, none really to speak of. But I really still didn't know Jesus. And so, one day, uh, was, I guess I was about 12 years old, one day my mom and I are driving down the road, and I'm sitting there in the car with her, and uh, by the way, uh, young parents, if you ever need to talk to your kids, talk to them in the car, because there's no escape, all right? So they have to sit there, and they have to listen. Um, so, so we're driving down the road, and she says... Do you think it's about time that you made a decision? And y'all, I knew, I knew exactly what she meant. Uh, I guess mainly because uh, I was raised in the, the Christian environment, gone to church, and, and probably knew a lot of the lingo that would go with it. Don't you think, or do you think, it's about time you made a decision? I knew what she meant. And it was one of the most important questions that I would ever answer in my entire life. It was really at that moment that, uh, that God began to work in my heart. Because I knew, I, I really knew that I needed to put my faith in Christ. And that's really where my journey began. And so, when she put that question to me, I realized, okay, what's next? I even knew then, at the age of 12, there had to be a what's next. What do I need to do? And so, uh, the only thing that I, I could think of was, well, the next time I'm at church, maybe I should go down the aisle at the invitation time, and maybe I should talk to the pastor, which is exactly what I did there in Midland, Texas. Uh, First Baptist Church of Midland, Texas, walked down the aisle. It's, uh, it's a huge church with very long aisles. It seemed like a mile down there when I was walking forward to see the pastor. And I got down there, and I basically just said to him, the only thing I knew to say was, 
I need to accept Jesus. I've never done that. And I need to do so. And he said, you know what? Why don't you come visit me in my office? And so that's what happened. I got on the phone, called the office, and uh, basically made an appointment to go see the pastor. And uh, there in his office is where he explained to me what it really meant to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And there in that office with him is where I prayed a prayer, uh, not a formula prayer, not anything that you have to say or should say or shouldn't say. It was an open-hearted, heartfelt, Lord, come into my heart prayer. And that's really where, how, uh, how God, how I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And so, fast forward a little bit after that. I uh, get to my junior year in uh, high school, and um, our, our church went on mission trips together. Our, our youth group uh, did mission trips. And so I was on one of those mission trips, and during that time we had gone into the mountains of New Mexico and uh, were visiting an Indian reservation, actually, in New Mexico. And uh, we were called on to... Uh, uh, we'd sing, we'd do uh, our choir numbers and things like that. And then afterwards, we were called on to go and share our faith with the people there in the audience. And, and so I just happened to see a, a young Indian uh, boy there, and I thought, okay, I, I need to go and share my story with him. I, made, I need to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And so I don't really remember a whole lot about what I said, but I do remember this. While it was not an audible, you know, booming voice coming out of the heavens, I do remember that God was calling me at that moment by telling me, this is what I want you to do for the rest of your life. And so that, was, that basically was my calling uh, into the gospel ministry. And so that literally, that moment set the trajectory of my ministry that carried on from there. And so I've had the opportunity to serve in some really, really great churches over the years. Uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Little Rock, and First Plano, and Travis Avenue Baptist Church, and Hyde Park here in Austin, and, uh, and then most recently at First Baptist Church in Round Rock, which I'm, I'm still a member there. And so I've, I've had the privilege of, of serving in different ways for those different churches. You know, uh, student ministry, singles, recreation, adult discipleship, family ministry, church growth, first impressions, missions, and I've even served as a uh, facilities manager. And so God has really uh, shaped me in a unique way to be able to come to uh, work with Williamson Baptist. And so about a year and a half ago, uh, God once again placed um, a new opportunity for ministry in my life, and so I, I submitted my resume for this position for the director of Williamson Baptist Association, and so it's a, it's an honor and a blessing to be able to have been s serving uh, for this last year um, with the association. And so, for those of you who may not be familiar with uh, the the WBA Williamson Baptist Association, we serve together and now serve together with Redeemer Georgetown. Uh, and many other churches in the area to, to fulfill um, the, 
the purpose of reaching people in our communities throughout Williamson County and beyond um, to, to reach them with the gospel. And so uh, we do that through different focuses, of course. And one of those is starting new churches. And so now that, uh, now that you guys are, are connected with the associate, you're part of the network, you are now actively involved in planting new churches. And I know this, is, this church plant uh, started how many, Bob, how many years ago? About two years ago, um, you guys started as a church plant. And so you know firsthand what it's like to start new. And so that's part of what we do through the association is start new churches and help churches to do that. Um, we also uh, are involved in, in helping churches and, and staffs come up with and, and be involved with the most healthy ministry strategies that we can possibly be. Um, and we'll help in doing that in any, in any way or capacity that we can possibly do that. Um, and sometimes that calls for revitalization. You've probably heard that word in the, the church realms, you know, you're talking about churches and revitalizing what you're doing. Um, I've definitely been a part of some churches that need to be revitalized, and so I know what that looks like. Um, uh, also, uh, the association does uh, help equip pastors and leaders for the work of ministry. And so I just wanted to give you... Uh, a quick uh, overview about what the association is about and why it's important for Redeemer uh, Georgetown to be involved in such great work. And so you've heard a little bit about my story, and you heard about uh, the question that my mom asked me. You know, there, there are so many decisions that need to be made and questions that need to be asked along the way. You know, not all, not all questions and decisions are quite, you know, so weighty. They're not quite so important. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are so many different trivial questions that we could ask ourselves. And really, the, the answers really don't matter a whole lot, but that's why they call them trivial, right? They're not quite as important. Um, just, just for fun, let me, uh, let me bring this up. Um, just thinking about trivial questions. Um, so I went to uh, a really reliable place for these uh, questions. I went to the internet, right? So it's, they've all got to be true. It's been said on the internet that the following five questions are among the top 10 hardest general knowledge questions to answer. And so um, just real quick, I'm going to ask you some of these questions, see how you do. All right, so let's go through these questions. There's five of them out of the ten. And remember, they're supposed to be hard. So number one, what is the world's smallest country? All right, we'll just, we'll go through the questions. World's smallest country. Number two, what are the first three books of the Old Testament? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna gonna to give you that one, all right? Come on. <laughs> number three. What are the names of the five oceans? And number four, uh, which chess piece can't move in a straight line? And number five, which planet is closest to the sun? All right, so I see a lot of people 
Yeah, I see some phones. I see a lot of deliberating going on. It's like, what, uh, so I'm going to give you the answer to these real quick. So what was the world's smallest country? Anybody, come on. Vatican City. Vatican City is the world's smallest country. All right, number two, what's the first three books of the Old Testament? Genesis, come on, Exodus, Leviticus, that's right. Number three, what are the names of the five oceans? Pacific, Atlantic, Indian, Arctic, and this is the one that people struggle with. Southern, very good, very good. Which chess piece can't move in a straight line? Oh, there we go. Somebody plays chess. All right, way to go. Way to go. All right. And then number five, which planet is closest to the sun? Mercury. That's right. And y'all, those are, those are just trivial, fun things to think about. They're not super important. They're, I mean, it's good to know just general knowledge sometimes. Um, did anybody get all five? Yeah, you got them all? All right. <laughs> so seriously, though, in life, that there's, there, there's some really tough questions, uh, apart from being trivial. In life, there, there really are some tough questions, some harder than others. Um, and, and some of them are more important than others, obviously. So like, you know, what am I going to do for a living or... or where should I live, or uh, should I get married, and if so, then to who? Um, should I have children, and how many? You know, these are all pretty weighty questions, and questions that, uh, and decisions that have to be made along the way. And the list could continue of all the important decisions that you have to make, even in a, in a day's time. But let's go to what the Bible reveals as the most critical question. Actually, the most important and critical question ever. And one that eventually everyone must answer. And so uh, we're going to begin, the scripture reading has already been, already been done in Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, electronic, in print, whichever, turn to Matthew 16, 13 through 18. And as you, as you make your way to that passage of Scripture, let me give just a little background and context to this situation. During this time, Jesus and his disciples have been walking through the northern region of Galilee. Probably a more accurate description of what they're actually doing is camping through the region. Uh, in each village and town, Jesus was working miracles and uh, impacting the lives of the people around him. He did the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the walking on the water. He healed the sick. He fed 4,000. And even more of uh, these miracles happened, according to Scripture, that we just don't know detail. Uh, we don't know everything about every miracle that happened. But we know that he did many signs and wonders. So Jesus is now gaining in popularity uh, every day among the people as, as he travels. And the only exception to this is 
that the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, they didn't really like this too much. And the reason why is because they, uh, they were losing power. And they did, that was a power struggle for them, and they didn't want to give up that power. So Jesus is in his final, um, his final year of his ministry on earth, and he's about to head for Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the, the scripture that we're focused on this morning, it's actually the end of his ministry there in the, in the region of Galilee. He leads, he leads his followers to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is a place. Caesarea Philippi is a place that no respecting Jew would ever go to. For any Jew, this was among the worst areas that you could ever travel. Caesarea Philippi was known for its vile and pagan practices. In, in particular, the worship and sacrifice to the Greek god Pan. Um, the, the Grotto of Pan, which is located there in Caesarea Philippi, uh, and it's, it's, it's in a prominent location. The Grotto is in a prominent location there in, Phil, in Caesarea Philippi. It's, it's kind of dug out and deep uh, into the bottom of a hundred-foot cliff. Uh, real quick, has anybody ever been to the Holy Land? Anybody ever been there? Did you guys have a chance to go to Caesarea Philippi? Excellent place to visit. If you ever have a chance to, to make a trip to the Holy Land, wouldn't suggest that right now. Um, but uh, eventually, if you have a, a chance to make it over to uh, the Holy Land, it would be great because you get to actually lay your eyes on things like Caesarea Philippi and actually stand in places that Jesus stood and see the things uh, all, you know, although they are many, many, many years older than what they were then, you get to see the things uh, uh, that, and be in places that Jesus experienced uh, his, uh, in his ministry. And so the Grotto of Pan at the bottom of this 100-foot cliff um, is one of the main sources for the Jordan River. And today, there, there, there's no water flowing out of the Grotto of Pan into the Jordan, even though it is one of the heads of water for the Jordan. So pagan idol worshipers believed that the water source at that surface, the very surface of the water, was the opening to the gates of Hades. So it was literally... They believed that this particular location was literally the gates of hell. Have you ever visited a place that you knew immediately that you needed to leave? Like within your spirit, you just knew that you shouldn't be in that place. You could literally feel the presence of evil. This must have been how the disciples close to Jesus must have felt. I'll give you an illustration of how it happened to me not too many years ago. I was a young, young guy, and I was traveling with my family in Germany. Um, and we, a lot of the travel is by train uh, there in Germany. And so myself, my family, and my military brother, we were all on this train traveling together. And we were trying to, I don't even remember where we were going at this point, but I do remember we missed our stop. 
and so we had to travel on to the next town in order to get off the train and come back. And we thought, well, since we missed our, our exit or our, our train stop, why don't we just get off and see what we can see here, and then we'll catch, you know, a, eventually catch a train back where we're supposed to go. Well, we got off the train, and immediately we knew we could feel within our spirit that we were in the wrong place, but we also knew that we were in the wrong place because all up and down uh, the train station, hanging from the rafters, were red and yellow flags with hammer and sickles on them. And uh, for those in the audience here, back in that day in 1979, you didn't want to be anywhere <laughs> where there was a flag with hammer and sickle. The communist uh, countries were alive and well, and um, especially for our military brother, he really didn't need to be there. And so we knew immediately we need, and we knew in our spirit we shouldn't be there. I can only guess that the disciples immediately entering into Caesarea Philippi were feeling this sense of evil, the sense of we should not be here. They've been taught all their life that they should not be in a place like this. But here they were, and this is Jesus leading them into this environment. They had to have been asking, why in the world is Jesus bringing us to a place like this? And they've heard the stories all their life about uh, what goes down in Caesarea Philippi. And by the way... Um, uh, adding to the unrest for the uh, disciples at this point, just a few miles from where they were there is the city of Dan, which is where Jeroboam set up a false altar to God. Uh, and God was not pleased with that uh, uh, little story in the Old Testament. And uh, later on, that very location became a source for idol worship among God's people. And so the, the people that followed Jesus would have known that this would have been an area that they needed to avoid. So let's take a look at what the scripture has to say in Matthew 13, verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You're the, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that, uh, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I can almost see and, and feel the experience as Jesus is saying these things to Peter, especially there at the end when he says the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I can almost see that he was probably standing within a sight line or uh, somewhere close to where the grotto would have been, or the, what they believed to be the gates of hell. And I can, almost, I can almost experience with them Jesus 
putting emphasis, and the gates of hell will not be overpowered by it, and actually motioning or, or looking back towards the, where the gates would have been and saying, those gates will not prevail. They will not be overpowered by it. Generally speaking, you know, Jesus didn't care on his time on earth. He didn't really care a whole lot about, you know, what people thought of him. But at some point during their arrival to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is referring to, that phrase is referring to his humanity. And by the way, um, the phrase Son of Man is used 88 times in the New Testament. And this phrase, that he, it's the phrase that Jesus used most often to refer to himself. So the disciples were basically used to hearing him say, Son of Man. But they probably weren't used to him asking that question. Who do people say that I am? That's an important question to focus on. But the next question is the most important. Jesus said, Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? The question that everyone eventually has to answer in this life. If you don't answer it in this life, you're definitely going to answer it in the next life face-to-face with Jesus. We will all be required to answer this question. This is basically a one-question evangelism strategy. You know, even if you don't have an answer yet, at the very least, it gives you reason to pause. It gives you a reason to think about what you really believe. For Peter, it was, a profession, uh, it was a profession of who Christ really is to him. To others, it may, not, it may not seem so clear. The answer uh, to the question basically leads to a tipping point in your life. If you believe like Peter... It's that moment that that you move from just knowing about Jesus to a heart knowledge of who He really is. It's the moment that you acknowledge and trust that God, what God has revealed to you about Himself. It's the very moment that you put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, as Messiah. It's the very moment you come to the realization that he is who he says he is. You realize that his teachings are true. Everything he promised is true. He is the Lord of your life. He is the King of kings. It's that moment that your faith becomes your own. You believe because God has revealed himself to you just like Peter. You don't just believe because somebody told you to believe. You truly, truly believe and know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is Lord because he has 
taken up residency in your life, in your heart, and in your soul. With all three of my kids, Shelly and I have uh, made a point to encourage them to own their faith. They need to stop renting our faith, and they need to own their own faith. Of course, it's, it's our job to help, fel- help shape their faith, and that's okay. But in that direction that we're trying our best to help lead them and direct them, eventually that has to become a faith that becomes their own. There comes a time that they have, they have to believe in God because it's personal to them. It's a decision that they have made. So the question also, uh, also emph- emphasizes this. It emphasizes the freedom of choice. No one is forcing belief or limiting our ability to, to decide for ourselves. God, in His infinite love for all people, has provided free choice. Free choice when it comes to, to faith in Him. It's the only way that love can, can truly be expressed. Love is only love when it is freely given. So today I have three challenges for us. First, would you make who do I say Jesus is? Would you make that question something that you ask yourself on a daily basis? The more we consider who Jesus is and what he means to us, the deeper our relationship can grow with him. And so would you simply just ask yourself that question on a daily basis? Who do I, who do I think Jesus is today? Second thing, would you make it a goal to ask that same question of other people on a regular basis? I've already kind of stated earlier that uh, who do you say I am is kind of a one one question evangelistic strategy. So would you share that scripture or that particular question with other people? Would you use the question, who do you think Jesus is? As that one question evangelism strategy. I don't know if you've ever gotten into a conversation with a person uh, about who Jesus really is before. But simply asking that question will definitely get people thinking. And then third, are you able today? Are you able today to answer the question that just like Peter did? Have you made that confession just like Peter did? That Jesus is the son of the living God. He is the Messiah. And ask yourself, can I make that confession? Do I really believe and can I confess him as my Lord and Savior today? 
So let's just take a few minutes. I've given you three challenges. Let's take just a few minutes to consider uh, these challenges, these questions. Just where you are, if you want to bow your head, just where you are. Review these questions in your, in your heart. Can I answer that question, who do you say I am? Can I answer it? Will I be willing to share it with other people? And can I actually confess that Jesus is my Lord and Savior? Is that where I am today? Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you that you have given us the challenges that we've heard this morning, answering the question, who do you say I am? Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to be open with you, as you know our heart anyway. God, today, if there's someone in this room that hasn't been able to make that same confession that Peter did, there in Caesarea Philippi, to call you the Messiah, to call you Lord, to know that you've come to live in our hearts. God, if there's someone in this room that hasn't made that confession, I pray today would be that day where they, they would realize, I need to make that decision. I need to answer that question. I need to be sitting in that car just like Kirk was with his mom and say, yes, I need to make that decision. And it's about time I did that. Today in this room, if you haven't made that decision, what's holding you back? What are you going to do about it? What's your next step? I know today that there's leaders all across this room, myself, that will be glad to speak with you about your decision, whatever it may be. Don't leave today without making that decision.